we have spent the last 19 weeks or so, Bill and I, talking through the Gospel of Luke at a very fast pace. And our hope really in this series has been to introduce you to Jesus. To ask the question, who is this Jesus? What is his message? What was his mission? Um, and, you know, some of the things I'm hearing as I've, I've walked more and more with individuals that spend time at the garden or if they're new to the garden, the thing they keep telling me is that they didn't know that about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus was like this. Whether they grew up in the church or not, that seems to be a common theme. And that really excites me because all we're doing is, is teaching through the scriptures to reveal and hopefully um, help you identify what Jesus really was like and is like today. And... Um, the world, I think, is quite confused about this Jesus. And I wanted to summarize a little bit. And all I wanted to do this morning was to read the narrative uh, at the end of this gospel that walks very slowly through Jesus' death. Um, because I believe the scriptures um, is, are life-giving. And that if we just read it, we can, we can hear God's voice spoken to us. And so it's a little bit different this morning, but I'm very excited with the sermon um, to bring to you. You see, I think the, the world makes arbitrary claims about Jesus being either just a, a prophet or a teacher or some religious leader of some sort, like all the other religious leaders. And uh, we know for a fact, reading through the Gospel of Luke, that this is not exactly accurate. That in, in the midst of a world that is confused, we can bring clarity to who Jesus was and what he was like. Would you agree? You see, as I was reflecting over the last few weeks of preaching, actually the whole series, I realized that Jesus confronts all of our religious presuppositions in the Gospel of Luke. You see, he was born to poor parents in a marginalized country in the middle of nowhere. He was baptized in a divine blessing. He was given a divine blessing from the Father in heaven. And he began his public ministry with an announcement. Good news to the poor. Freedom to the prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind and setting the, the oppressed free. He brings healing to the sick. brings wholeness to the leper. He brings freedom to the spiritual captives. And forgives the sins of the paralyzed. He teaches his followers to love. To love their enemies. To pray for those who persecute them. He says to love God and love your neighbors, even if those neighbors are those that are hated by the rest of society. He blesses prostitutes. He welcomes in the tax collectors. And he announces that his kingdom is for everyone, including, but not exclusively, the bigoted. The abominations of society, the ugly, the morally corrupt, the uh, lame, the least, the last and the lost, the excluded and the uninvited are dining with Jesus in his table of fellowship. Jesus calms storms and redefines family systems and raises the dead. He empowers the powerless with the resources of heaven. He invites fishermen with no education to do what he did. And then he invites all of us to partner with him in his ministry. And he tells us not to worry about our lives. For all we need to do is ask a father in heaven who already knows what we need. He teaches us not to build bigger storage units, but to sell all we have to the poor and give to the poor. He says to treasure the things that will last for eternity. He teaches us not to judge others, but to embrace others. He, he feeds the hungry, feeds the multitudes, and he says we will do greater things than that. Greater things than he's done. 
He said the door is narrow and the first will be last and the last shall be first. He said when you throw parties, invite those that could never invite you back. In other words, those that don't have a place to throw the party. Jesus confronts all of our religious junk. All of our false images. Jesus is more than just some teacher or some rabbi or some religious leader. He confronts us with reality. The ultimate reality. He confronts our systems of comfort. He confronts our systems of control. He confronts our narrow worldview. And he challenges all of it. But most of all, he confronts our false images of God. He confronts the idols we worship. The various distorted images that we've collected over the years. The ones that tell us he's angry, he's whimsical, he's frustrated with us, he's holding out, and he's not that kind. Those false images of God that we've collected, whether in church or outside of the church. You see, Jesus confronts us with the false gods. He challenges the gods that we have made safe and manageable the things that help us manage our lives. You see, Jesus brings us revelation. He is the revelation of God. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus confronts us with a better image of God, one that is too good to be true. He confronts us with ideas and stories of God that are so controversial, most of us don't even understand how compelling the God is. It insults our concept of God. Even if we grew up in the church, even if we think we have somewhat of an adequate understanding, His God is greater than you could ever imagine. When asked to describe what God is like, Jesus will say, well, God is like a great host who throws a party and compels the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame to join him in the party. When asked what God is like, he says, God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And when he loses the one, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one lonely and lost sheep. And when he finds the lonely and lost sheep, he throws a party and celebrates He says God is like a woman who has ten silver coins. And when she loses one, she tears up her house, turns it upside down to find the one lost coin. And when she finds it, she invites her family and friends into the house and they throw a celebration for finding what was once lost and now found. found. And he says in the same way God rejoices in the presence of angels when one sinner repents. When one, one sinner repents. It's like... God who turns up the house to find that one. It's like a woman who who takes her. And I don't know if you have a wife, but my wife, when we clean and things aren't right, I mean, it is nuts. We turn the house upside down. God's like that, Jesus says. (laughs) Fascinating, those stories of God. How can God be so generous? How could God be so loving? How, How could he be... I mean, really? Is God really like that? And he tells another story. What is God like? And he tells a story that God, God is like a waiting father who's got two sons. And we've taught through this, but let me remind you. God is like a waiting father who has two sons. His younger son demands his inheritance. God, I wish you were dead. Father, I wish you were dead. Excuse me. Give me what's rightfully mine when you die. And he takes, and the father gives him this money. 
And, this, and the, the rebellious son takes the money and squanders it away and lives a life of debauchery. He wastes his money on false investments. He, he, he spends his money on, on, on all sorts of, of addiction, probably. He just loses his money, shaming his family, shaming his, fun, uh, his, his father, making his father a mockery in society, making his father a mockery in his village. And he gets to the end of his rope and he says, as he's lost everything, including now living in shame, he says, I, I, my dad's servants, my dad's slaves live better than this. And his reasoning, he says, I'm not worthy to be his son, but maybe I can go back to my father and, and he will make me a servant. And so the son, the rebellious son, takes a long walk back to his father in shame, having squandered all that he had, having insulted not only his father, but shaming his family. He makes his way back. Yet Jesus tells the story of the waiting father who sees the son at, his, at a distance. And, and as he sees his son, he, he just takes off running. He can't wait to see him. And the son walking in that lonely, long walk of shame, making those excuses. I'm not worthy to be your son. I I have wronged you. I have lost it. Make me a slave. The father comes running, nearly tackles him, puts his arms around him and says, my boy. Puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back, signifying his identity that this is his son. Throws, kills the cat, fatted calf and throws a party. For my son, who was once lost, has been found. He was once dead and he's alive again. The story of what God's like. And there's a, the, the story, the other part of the story is the older son who's working with the father, who's, who's, who's working in half of the land because the other half was squandered away working hard in the presence of his father. And he, he comes home after a long day's work and, and sees a, a party going on without him. And he finds out it's his younger son who's come back. And his heart is hardened to the generosity, to the grace and compassion that has been bestowed to the younger son. He couldn't imagine a fa- his father being so gracious. And his father compels him to come in, but he won't. He refuses to celebrate the grace that the father bestowed on his younger son. We hear the story and it's too grand. It's too marvelous. It's too wild. It's scandalous. What do you mean this is what God's like? That's not fair. It's not. God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. Really? I mean, 99%, that's pretty good for shepherding. That's an A, almost an A+. Plus. Leaves, uh, turns the house upside down for one. Are you kidding me about the son who squandered him? God's going to forgive like that? God's going to love like that? It's too good to be true. It's too grand. We don't even have vocabulary words to describe how outrageous this is. The greatest love poets, the greatest authors in the world, if they got together, Shakespeare, Dickinson, uh, uh, Dickens, uh, E.E. Cummings, if you put all of them together, they could not in a million years come up with such an elaborate, extravagant love story. But Jesus tells it. And as I wrestle with so many people, 
as I as I walk in life with so many people in so many different stages, the common questions I get about Jesus' stories are how can that be true? Is that really what God's like? How can the stories that Jesus tell be true? How do we know that this is what this is what God is like? How do we have factual evidence that this is how God loves? It's not just a fairy tale. How do we know as Christians that this is in fact our God? That our God is like a waiting father, like a shepherd who leaves the 99, like a woman who throws a party with her friends. How do we know? Well, to answer this question, all we have to do is read the story of Jesus' death. I want to read this story, um, and it's a, it's a long story, but so ha- grab a Bible if you don't have one. We'll come back. We're going to go to Luke chapter 22. We'll start there. It will be on the screen. But I want to read to you a story that helps us understand all that Jesus lived and taught is validated in his death. And I want you to pay attention. Would you just pay attention to the narrative? Pay attention to Jesus' response throughout this story, okay? You with me? Luke, we'll start in verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve disciples, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him. And demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then Jesus said, uh, then they said, excuse me, why do we need more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. 
Then the whole assembly rose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment, to, payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. In verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But the loud shouts they, uh, the, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for the insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Serene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, a Roman soldier, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people had gathered to witness his sight, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus is questioned. He's betrayed. 
He's spit upon. He's struck in the face. He's slapped. He's mocked. He's denied by one of his closest friends in his moment of need. He's given a crown of thorns. He's insulted. He's stripped naked. He's sneered at. He's struck with a rod. He's flogged. And he's crucified to death. And despite the worst thing that you could possibly do to a human being, crucifixion was the worst thing you could possibly do to a human being. Despite having the worst thing that you could have happen to you, his response in that circumstance Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he's hanging on the cross with nails in his hands, beaten, naked, alone and isolated, nails in his feet, hanging as one criminal insults him, mocking him. The other criminal says, remember me in this kingdom. And his only response as he's dying is, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus is having the worst thing that could possibly happen to him, happens. His response is forgiveness and inclusion. His response is love. Because that's all he learned how to do from the Father. This gives us so many implications. For those of us that are walking in situations that are horrible and dire, full of despair, and you can't see a way out, wrong has been done to you. Jesus gives us another way to live. Even as we feel like we're dying, he gives us another way out. Another way to respond. Another way to say, well, I love you. Jesus offers us another way. Jesus demonstrates the way. While dying on the cross, Jesus' only response is that of love. Brothers and sisters, the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. We were designed to live with God for eternity, but our sin, our junk, our behaviors that have distorted our lives, our families, and the world around us got in the way of that perfect relationship. But rather than God leaving us at our own demise and despair, rather than Him leaving us isolated and alone, He took it upon Himself to take our place so that we can be in right relationship with Him. He not only solves our problems, He solves His problems. He longs for us like a waiting father. How do we know it's true? How do we know the stories that Jesus tells that are so outrageous, that are so ridiculous, that are too lavish for us to understand? How do we know they're true? Because Jesus died on a cross and showed us they're true. He doesn't just tell stories. He demonstrates the story. Jesus doesn't just tell stories. He demonstrates the stories for us. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and raised from the dead. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When Jesus tells us the story of a father who is so generous and so forgiving and so kind and so lavish in love, we can say it's true because of the cross. And so this morning, as a way to just enter into this week, this holy week, 
as we prepare for first the cross and second Easter Sunday. We have to go through the cross to get to Sunday. We have to recognize that Jesus willingly chose the worst kind of death as a punishment so that we wouldn't be punished. And I don't know about your list, but my list is really long. So the cross becomes a moment of reflection. A moment of recognition that this actually is a symbol of love. It's a symbol of grace. And it's a symbol of God validating, Jesus validating everything he said. So I want to invite you to the cross this morning. I want to invite you to come to the cross and reflect on what it is for you and for us that put him there. And if you look through the narrative, there are only two groups of people that come to the cross. There are only two groups. There are only two groups. There's one group full of the crowd and soldiers and one criminal that mock and insult Jesus. And essentially say, I want you on the cross and out of my life. That's one group. Or the other group. The group that comes to Jesus weeping and wailing. And like a dying beggar says, remember me in your kingdom. You are either in one or the other. There's no in between. There's no fence. It's one or the other. And this morning I invite you to choose. What will you choose this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, this is a painful reminder of what it took for us to experience freedom and salvation. It is often a painful reminder to read the story of your crucifixion, the story of your insults, of the questions, of the mistreatment, of the injustice that you embodied so that we could be free with you, so that we could have eternity, so that we could live now in a way that is full of life, the life that is real life, not in bondage, not in slavery, and in right relationship. I think... Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.